0: Well as you can see in your bulletin we turn now to 1st Samuel nearing the end of this book that we've been making our way through for several months now 1st Samuel picking up this morning at chapter 27 3 chapters in a row now chapters 24, 25 and 26 David's been in the position of being tempted to shed blood that he should not shed and having to exercise self-control in the face of that temptation. In one of those cases, it was a man named Nabal, and it was Abigail who persuaded David not to do it, not to kill him. In the other two cases, it was Saul himself. And in those cases, it was David's own internal conviction that guided him, that held him back. Three chapters in a row, chapters 24, 25, and 26. And that brings us this morning to chapters 27 and 28. We're going to cover those two chapters today. Chapter 27 isn't all that long compared to some others that we've seen lately. The story that we're going to have before us this morning, especially chapter 28, this is dark. And by that I mean it's literally dark. This is an episode that unfolds at night. And as we'll see, there's something fitting about that. But it's also spiritually dark. This is a story in which Saul goes down into some pretty fearful depths. This is a story in which Saul reaches out to the realm of the dead while he's still alive, though not for long. Saul's reaching down into these depths at a time when, and he realizes this, at a time when he's not too far away from going there himself. So it's ominous, it's mysterious. It's awful. This is dark. But of course, it's always the Lord who guides us whenever we find ourselves in the position of having to go down into a dark valley, including those that we have to go down into as we make our way through his word. And this morning is no exception. The Lord will guide And so let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we are aware this morning as we go to it again of the wide variety that you've given us in the Bible, including stories, true stories, including this one. Father, we pray that you would Guide us as we have to go to a dark place this morning. Thank you that you are a God who guides, who teaches, who instructs. For these things were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up at the beginning of chapter 27. This right after David spared Saul's life again, but David's still on the run. Take a look at verse 1. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told, Saul, that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. We were noticing last week that in some of these chapters, we're not given explicit chronological clues as to how much time passed between this or that. Well, here we get one. Here we're told it was a year and four months that he was there. This isn't the first time that we have seen David flee to the territory of the Philistines. We saw it before back in chapter 21, so six chapters ago. David fled to Gath, and remember, when he realized his life was in danger there, back in chapter 21, that's when David pretended to be a madman in Gath, and that's how he managed to escape. He even wrote a few psalms about it. Well, here he is again, chapter 27. He's back in the territory of the Philistines. He's back in Gath. Remember, that that was one of the five leading cities in the territory of the Philistines. We don't know if this king of Gath is the same one as before. Achish could have been a title or a common name. We're not entirely sure about that. In any case, David asks to be given some territory removed from Gath, removed from the royal city, and the king of Gath grants that to him. And because David remembers that it nearly cost him his life last time to be among the Philistines, because he realizes that the Philistines still aren't going to be entirely comfortable with his presence among them, he knows that this time he's going to have to find a way to put the Philistines at ease. He's going to have to find a way to make them think that they've got nothing to be afraid of when it comes to his presence there. And so the story goes on. Take a look at verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels. Excuse me, the garments, and come back to Akish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremiah, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in a country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Pause there at the end of chapter 27. We can admit it is not easy to make sense of this morally in David's case. It's not easy to know what we're supposed to make of this, the fact that David wiped out these whole populations, and that he did so, at least in part, in order to keep up a lie that kept himself and his people safe. We can admit that's tough to read, that's tough to contemplate, especially when we know that this is a man after God's own heart. And this is a man who's destined to reign over God's people. This is not interpreted for us here, what David does. We're not given any moral commentary here. One Bible scholar goes so far as to say this is one of the most disreputable episodes in the whole of David's career. And even the folks who try to defend him, it's not entirely clear just how to do that. So what do we make of this? Well, we can certainly say David had faults and failings, including some profound ones. And we get that from the Bible itself. We get David warts and all. So we don't come to this chapter assuming that David is going to be spotless in every chapter because he's not. So we allow that. But we can say this much, given the lessons that David's been learning lately and the convictions that he's been exhibiting and the temptations that he's been resisting about not shedding blood that he should not shed, it does seem unlikely to me that David would be guilty of carrying out the wiping out of whole populations apart from some warrant in the eyes of God and that it was just a way of keeping up his ruse. It is possible, again, David had his shortcomings, but it does seem hard to imagine, given everything that we've seen lately, the convictions that David has exhibited and the lessons that he learned quite strikingly about exercising self-control in the face of the temptation to shed blood. It could be that David sees himself as following through on the thoroughgoing holy war that God told his people to carry out against the inhabitants of the land he was giving them. That could be. Could be that these populations represented some kind of terroristic threat against the people of God and that there was no other way to protect the people from them. It could be that that's what was in David's mind. We don't know. We're told very little here in any case, this much is clear. David's still on the run because Saul has forced him to it. And whatever we make of David's conduct, and it's not easy, things are getting desperate for them both, for David and Saul. So, chapter 27 is a glimpse of that in David's case. And now we keep going to chapter 28 because now we're going to see it in Saul's case. Things are getting desperate. So take a look at chapter 28 now, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now pause there. There is a tantalizing ambiguity about what David says there. Because the king of this Philistine city says... David, you'll fight with me, you'll fight for the Philistines against your own people, against the people of God, against the people that you're destined to reign. Now, of course, Achish doesn't put it that way. Achish has come to the conclusion that David is alienated from his people. But Achish really does expect that David's going to go into warfare on the side of the Philistines against the people of God, the people that David's been anointed to reign over one day. And what does David say back? Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Which is a very intriguing thing for him to say. You can't help but wonder if David's thinking, Achish, you're going to find out on the field of battle whose servant I really am. When you think that you're going to lead me into battle against my own people, against the people of God. Very intriguing, the way David puts it. Look now at verse 3. Verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Look at that again. Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Those are two practically synonymous terms, mediums and necromancers. In fact, it's it's commonly the case in the Old Testament that you have those two terms paired together. Mediums and necromancers, they refer to people who sought guidance by seeking to communicate with the dead. And that was a fairly common practice among the nations that were around Israel, and so God made it very clear to the people of Israel in his law that it was not to be common among them, it was not to be found among them. So for example, Leviticus chapter 19 says this: Leviticus 19, do not turn to mediums or necromancers, do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, it goes on in the next chapter, I think, to say, if you do that, whoever seeks out mediums and necromancers, whoever seeks out guidance like that, they are to be cut off from among my people. And then a generation later in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses is getting them ready to cross over into the promised land, God says it again, I will not have that among my people. So that was the law of God. And Saul, to his credit, at least we can say this much, Saul had taken steps as king to enforce that law to make sure that those kinds of people would not be found among the people of God. that that practice would not be found. Although, as we're about to see, that may have been his royal policy as king, but sadly it was not his personal policy from the heart. Now, a little Bible geography here before we keep going. This week, in what's about to unfold, we're a good bit farther north on the map than where we've been for almost the entire book of 1 Samuel. We've spent almost all of our time in the central region and then lately down in the south. Now we're much farther north in the territory of the tribe of Issachar. That's where Mount Gilboa was located. So we're making our way north on the map. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. And, and that wasn't too far away from Mount Gilboa. So same, same basic region. Verse 8. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman By night, this whole story is cloaked with a kind of shame, disguising himself in garments, going by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? So at this point, she still doesn't know that it's Saul. Verse 10, but Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, what is unfolding here? This is unlike almost anything we encounter in the whole of the Bible. A few things to explain here insofar as we can even try to explain it, and we are certainly butting up against our limitations when we try to explain and understand this. Samuel was dead at this point. We've been told that several times, that's been made clear. It is the spirit of Samuel who has gone on, who appears here. It is some kind of visitation of Samuel's spirit from the realm of the dead. In some mysterious way, it must be that his spirit was made visible to her and his voice was made audible to Saul. She describes him as a god. Who knows exactly what she meant by that? It it may have meant nothing more than his appearance is that of an otherworldly figure. Who knows what's in her mind? The fact that Samuel rises, that he's brought up, that's the way it's put here. That's the way Samuel himself puts it. That doesn't have anything to do with heaven and hell. That's just reflecting the fact that he was appearing from the realm of the dead. How this woman came to understand that it was Samuel and that it was Saul in her presence, we don't know. She claimed to be able to communicate with the dead. Presumably, she was able to make a living off that claim. The fact that the spirit of Samuel does appear, that doesn't mean that she actually had the power to do this. And in fact, that may account for the fact that she was so surprised when it happened. Imagine making a living off a fraud, and then one time, for the first time, it actually works. You'd be surprised too. And then what follows, verse 15, is this conversation between the living and the dead. Verse 15, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me? since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. I mean, picture this. Here is this medium who's got to give wise counsel to the king of Israel who's been reduced like this. Verse 23, he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it and she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. And that conclusion is about as pitiful as it gets. Because here you've got the anointed one of God. And he has served a feast fit for a king, and he's served that feast when he's just been told that the next day he and his sons are going to die and his army's going to be defeated, because he's not fit to be a king. This is as pitiful as it gets. It's practically Shakespearean, but it's more because it's literally biblical. So that's what unfolds here. And as I said when we went to the Lord in prayer, this was written for our instruction. We we admit our limitations here. We've already recognized some things that are mysterious, some questions that we may not be able to answer because the text itself doesn't. Answer them, but that doesn't mean we're at a total loss. This was written for our instruction. So let's be instructed from it. Here's one truth we can take here today. Here's a lesson we can glean. When people wander away from God, they can end up deeply self-deceived. When people wander away from God, they can end up deeply self-deceived. And, and I put it that way deliberately. To wander from God, that implies that you started out with God. You started out as numbered among the people of God, and then you lost your way. You showed that you never really belonged to the people of God in the first place, at least not from the heart. And that was the case with Saul. Saul. And here's what's so jarring about this whole story. Here's one of the things that's so awful about it. Saul actually thinks that he's seeking God in this episode. I mean, the true and living God. Israel's God. That's how self-deceived he is. That's how bad things have gone. He actually thinks that he's seeking a word from God in all of these different ways, and presumably he thinks that God might honor him for it. Because he keeps, in all of these different ways, he keeps looking for a word from God to guide him. It's not like Saul is seeking out the false gods of the Moabites. It's not like he's gone to the, the temple of Dagon among the Philistines. Saul is able to tell himself here that he wants to know the word of God. And that's why he's sought out, finally, a prophet of God. And that gives you some insight into his own frame of mind here. And sadly, in one sense, this isn't all that shocking to, to find Saul in this state, in this chapter, chapter 28. For quite a few chapters now, this is a man... Who has come across, whether knowingly or not, whether self-consciously or not, this is a man who has come across as trying to preserve some semblance of knowing and serving the true God, all the while having turned his back on God, so that God has turned his back on him, even way back when in chapters 13 and 15. When Saul initially spectacularly failed God, even then he was saying things like, well, I was just trying to sacrifice to God. I wanted to give God the best. And ever since then, Saul has continued to use all of these these pious sounding phrases. The Lord be with you. As the Lord lives, may you be blessed by the Lord. May the Lord reward you. He's even saying that kind of thing to David while he's still determined to hunt David down. This is a man who keeps talking the talk. This is a man who is deeply self deceived about his own standing with God. Here at New Hope, we like to use that phrase word and spirit built into our church tagline. It's on our church website. It's on the bulletin you've got this morning. Word and spirit. It's a good biblical phrase to to, to capture, to bring together the word which guides us and the spirit who changes us. Well, in the most spectacular, extraordinary way, Saul has now lost them both. Word and spirit. Because a good while ago, God took his spirit from Saul in the sense of being equipped as king. And now what we find is that God has taken his word from Saul in the sense of being guided as king. Saul has lost them both as king, word and spirit, and he just keeps on keeping on like nothing's changed. That's how self-deceived he is. And there is a lesson to learn from that, and it is a hard lesson. But the truth is, even those who start out among the people of God can wander from God in such a way that they don't even realize how far they've wandered. And in the end, the self-deception is deep, and it's broad, and it's blinding. And maybe you know somebody like that. And to be honest, it may be that it's not just out there. It could be in here. In this room. Right now, this morning. Even those who start out among the people of God can wander and wander far in such a way that they don't even realize just how far they've gone. It is a fearful prospect. But, brothers and sisters, the very fearfulness of it ought to wake us up this morning, right now, ought to drive us to our knees so that we cry out for grace, grace that keeps us from it, because it was Saul's story, well, by the grace of God, that doesn't mean it has to be ours. So let it be a wake-up call. Let it be a warning. So there's that, first of all. Here's a second lesson we can glean, and it's, it's tied to the first. When people wander away from God, they can end up going to some very foolish sources for guidance. When people wander from God, they can end up resorting to some, some very foolish sources for guidance. Saul goes to a medium, even though he knows he's got no business going there. It was his own policy to put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. And yet here he is, disguising himself, going at night, It's a reminder of the human condition. The human condition is that everybody needs guidance. And deep down, whether they admit it or not, they know it. They may put on a good show. They may come across as supremely confident and self-sufficient when it comes to life and life's decisions. But deep down, they know it. We all need light to live by. Light that does not come from ourselves. Light that shines on us from some other force to show us the way to go. And so the big question is, where are you going to get it? Where are you going to find that guidance? Where are you going to find that light source that shows you the way? In in some people's lives, people who don't claim to be Christians at all, they're going to go looking for light to live by in any number of places. Everything from ancient false religions to apparently sophisticated philosophies to popular talk show drivel. They're going to go looking for light somewhere, light to live by. In other people's lives, people who do claim to be Christians or who want to keep up those appearances, they're going to go looking for light to live by in a way that feels like seeking God. So that they can continue to tell themselves, I'm, I'm seeking God. As I was saying before, that was the case with Saul. He didn't go to the gods of the Moabites or the Philistines. He leaned in for the voice of God, and then when he didn't hear anything, he desperately went looking for a prophet of God. And that's true of some people who call themselves Christians today. They're going to go looking for light to live by in a way that feels like seeking God. Everything from the ramblings of silly televangelists to the latest and greatest heretical Christian blogs, to inspirational slogans that have a vaguely religious ring to them. Because all of that is a whole lot easier and a whole lot less convicting than actually wrestling with the Scriptures and kneeling down before what you find there. So let this be a wake-up call for us as well, and a warning. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Wander from God and you're going to end up looking for light, maybe even looking for his word, the word of God, in ways that are foolish. And it finally won't get you anywhere. Let this be a summons to us today to seek the word of God, to seek guidance from God where he's told us to look for it. Which is in the Bible. Which is challenging and humbling and convicting and wonderful. That he's given us this book and he's called us to come here so that we find that light to live by. So there's that truth as well. Here's one more, one more lesson we can glean today, and we'll wrap up with this. And it is this God does not forget his own word. God God does not forget his own word. And I say that because what Samuel says to Saul here from the realm of the dead. What Samuel says to Saul about how God is against him and God has taken the kingdom from him. It is practically a verbatim quote from chapter 15. which is the chapter way back when, when Saul does not follow through on wiping out the Amalekites in the way that God told him to. You don't have to turn there, but if you flip way back to chapter 15, this is what Samuel, then alive, said to Saul in the wake of Saul's failure. Chapter 15, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Or he is not a man that he should have regret. That was way back in chapter 15. What Samuel says to Saul here from the realm of the dead in chapter 28 is a repetition of that. It's a reminder of that. God said that way back in chapter 15, but he hadn't forgotten. He hadn't gone back on it. It doesn't work that way always with human authorities. Parents, teachers, lawmakers, sometimes human authorities lay down some law, but they don't really mean it. Or they're not really committed to it. And so you just have to give it time before they forget or they change their mind and they go back on it. Just give it time. Parents set down some rule for the house. Or, or teachers announce a new policy for test taking. Or lawmakers make some new law that's a response to the latest and current events. And people think, just give it time. We've seen this before. They'll forget or they'll go back on it somehow. Or they'll change policy when the winds change. Brothers and sisters, God is not like that. It doesn't work that way with God. He does not forget. He doesn't change his mind. He stands by what he says, including his words of judgment, like what he said to Saul, like what he has said about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back at the end of the age. God remembers. But also including his words of salvation. He's not going to forget those words either. He, he, he pronounced his judgment that Christ is a sufficient Savior and he's not going to go back on that. So this is one of those truths that ought to make us tremble and rest. Because this is our God. Let us tremble. He's holy. And let us rest because he is holy in his mercy as well. As we heard this morning in our call to worship. Give thanks to the Lord because he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do worship you this day. As a God of holiness, as a God of steadfast love and mercy. Have mercy upon us. We know ourselves. We know that we are prone to wander. Lord, by your grace, bind us to yourself. Keep us near yourself so that we might not wander as we have considered today. Grant us to remember your word and to walk in it, including this, remembering that you remember it above all, and you will honor it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.